Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 28th of June 2021 and this is episode 214. On today's podcast, I talk to historian Dr Edward Madigan, Senior Lecturer in Public History at Royal Holloway, University of London, about his research into the response of British Jewish communities to the Great War. Edward spoke to me over the interweb from his office in London. Hi Edward, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Of course. Well, um, good to meet you, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, I was going to say it's great to be here, but I'm in my own living room, so that would be a bit odd. Um, But it's a pleasure to be participating in the Western Front Association podcast. And what drew me to the study of the Great War? Well, something I occasionally tell people is that I was born on the 10th of November. It's my birthday. And when I was a very small boy, my father said to me, if you had been born a day later, we were going to call you Armistice. And until I was quite a bit older, I honestly think I thought that Armistice was a saint. So I grew up in a country in which there was really little interest in the history of the First World War and certainly no popular or public commemoration of the Great War. So, you know, in the late 80s and 90s in Ireland, or at least in the Republic of Ireland, there was just no sense that the country had been involved in this cataclysmic war. And... Um, So what I did imbibe about the First World War as a child tended to be British. And very often it was a sort of a post-60s kind of lions led by donkeys narrative. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie's War. That was a comic strip that was published in the late 70s, although I came across it in the 80s in in the Eagle comic. And I was fascinated by the artwork and the references to the Psalm and Passchendaele and so on. And very much so I was intrigued by this British interest in the First World War. Whereas my my interest in Irish history was much more focused on the Easter Rising and and the subsequent War of Independence. Um, And then very much later, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I was a student in France. I was an Erasmus student uh, for nine or 10 months in northeastern France in the city of Reims or Reims, which of course is in the Champagne country and was very near the front line during the Great War. And, you know, that, that part of the country, as you, as you may well know, and as I'm sure many listeners know, is steeped in the history and heritage and the cultural memory of the First World War. So I, I really um, was fascinated by that in, in France during my time there. And when I came back, I, I did various things for a few years. And then I thought, you know, I'd really like to, to, to get stuck into um, academic, the, the scholarship, if you like, of the Great War. And... I, I did a doctorate on, on British, um, on faith and religious imagination in the British Army during, during the first. I looked at Anglican army chaplains because I felt that they, you know, they, they were preoccupied with this. Um, and also because I'm not Anglican and I'm, I'm not British and I wanted to look at a group that I could explore with a, a degree of detachment. And that went on to become a book called Faith Under Fire. And then in 2011, I became, and it was a great privilege and honour, I became the first uh, historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. So my role there, which developed over time, was, was mainly to direct the 1914-1918 the programme for the, for the War Graves Commission. And I think at that stage, 
I'd been studying the First World War for years, you know, I felt I had a pretty strong intellectual grasp of the military dynamics of the conflict and, and the cultural and social history. But it wasn't until I started regularly walking the, the former battlefields and visiting the, you know, the enormous memorials to the missing and the hundreds of cemeteries in France and Belgium. It wasn't until I started doing that that I got a, a very strong sense of the extraordinary human cost of the war. And I also got, and, and this is something I probably wasn't expecting, I also got a strong impressionistic idea of the military dynamics of the country, strategy, tactics, and, and to a degree, uh, command. You know, it, it, it isn't really until you go over to the Western Front, or what was the Western Front, that you get a sense of, of what the German forces did in 1914, which was essentially seize all the high ground in, in, uh, in the territories that they'd already occupied. Now, sometimes that high ground wasn't very high at all, and sometimes it was, you know, mountainous. But you, you get a strong impression of that. So that experience of working for the War Graves Commission just an amazing, gave me an amazing series of insights into the British and international experience of the world. And yeah, it was an amazing thing to be doing, perhaps especially for an Irishman. You know, I, was, I helped the British government um, in planning for the centenaries and centenary commemoration, especially the first um, major commemorative event of the centenaries. And, you know, I, I got to collaborate with some really interesting organizations internationally and in Britain too. So that was um, a great honor and a privilege. Of it. So your interest is in the experience of British Jews during the Great War. So why do you think this subject's important? Um, well, I, I should just clarify, Tom, that my interest originally was in, you know, um, kind of religion, religious identity, and then later into in things like courage and cowardice. And I, I have done this project on British Jewish responses to the war. Um, but, you know, it, it, I'd, I'd hesitate to sort of um, present myself as, a, as an expert in this, but it's, it's certainly something I've published on and in which I'm deeply interested. And I suppose one of the reasons I think the Anglo-Jewish community are worth exploring, or at least their responses to the Great War are worth exploring, is that even though they're a relatively small community in 1914, there's, a, there's a, at most about 300,000 Jewish people in Britain and Ireland uh, when the war breaks out. Um, they're by far the biggest non-Christian group on the, uh, in these islands. So they're very culturally distinctive. Um, and at least in England, they become, many of them had become quite prosperous and influential. So they're a highly distinctive cultural and religious group in British society. And up till now, relatively little has been said about the way they interpreted the war and experienced the war as it unfolded. Also, and I think this is important, some of the ways in which British Jews interpreted the war and experienced it and responded to it were extremely similar to the way non-Jewish, British and Irish people engaged with the war. But in other respects, Jewish responses to the conflict were highly distinctive. Um, and that was something I was interested in. So the, the distinctively Jewish interpretations of the war or responses to it. And then finally, I suppose I'd say that if you want to gain a handle on a society and its experience of a particular period or phenomenon or event or whatever, it's often worth looking at the minorities within that. And I think that's certainly true of um, the Anglo-Jewish community at the time of the Great War. You know, um, exploring their experiences, reading the narrative testimonies they produced tells us not just about the Anglo-Jewish experience of the conflict, but about the wider British uh, experience of the war. So it's, it's been a fascinating journey. 
So when we talk about the Anglo-Jewish community in, in 1914, obviously we're not talking about uh, a single homogenous group. Could you give us a rough idea of, of who they were, where do they live, and the, and the size and nature of the various communities within, within that group that we describe as the Anglo-Jewish community? Sure, of course. I mean, it's a very good question. Um, I, I think it's probably more accurate, accurate to talk about Anglo-Jewish communities, or indeed British-Jewish communities, during this period. So in terms of size, as I've suggested, there are about 300,000 uh, Jewish people living in communities spread across Britain and Ireland um, in August 1914. But most British Jews, about 80%, lived in just three English cities, London, Manchester and Leeds. And within the overall Anglo-Jewish community, there was considerable ethnic, cultural, and class diversity. So probably the, the most well-established, the most prosperous and influential and um, you know, I suppose longest established community within, the, within Anglo Jewry in 1914 are, are what are sometimes referred to as the Iberian Jews. So these would be British families whose ancestors had fled persecution in Spain and indeed Portugal in the Iberian Peninsula, essentially, at the end of the um, 15th century, the beginning of the 16th century, and subsequently migrated to Italy often, or France, or the Low Countries, and then on to, to Britain, and then and usually England. So here we're talking about families like the Montefiores and, uh, you know, some of the more well-established um, members of the Jewish elite in the early 20th century. That Iberian Jewish component was if you like, augmented in the 18th and 19th centuries by a, a significant influx of, of Jews from, from Germany and from Germanic Central Europe, so Germany and parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, that's the early 19th century. And by the end of the 19th century, th these kind of long-standing, well-established Jewish individuals and families and, and communities, you know, have really prospered and, 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 and are thriving. In, in Britain and particularly in England and London and Manchester, uh, some of these major cities. And, um, you know, there, there are several Jewish MPs, there's at least a couple of Jewish peers, uh, middle-class Jews are thriving in, in the professions and, you know, medicine and um, banking and law and so forth. And there's a sense among that element of the community that, you know, we're, we're fortunate to have been born in Britain, you know, we're, compared to our co-religionists, certainly in Russia, but equally in in Western Europe and in, in relatively enlightened countries like France and, and Germany and Austria, you know, British Jews are, are well treated, they're highly assimilated. However, in, in addition to that sort of long-standing Jewish community, which of which most of the elite are composed, from the early 1880s, there's a, there's a big influx of um, Jewish families and Jewish individuals from um, the Russian Pale of Settlement, from mostly what is modern day Poland and the Baltic states and, and Ukraine. And of course, they're fleeing from the, the pogroms um, that begin around 1881. So that there's huge numbers of these uh, people um, start moving west and, set, and many of them settle in London and particularly in the East End of London from the 1880s onwards. And there's, there's, there's a, as many as 150,000 um, so-called Russian Jews have settled in Britain by the outbreak of the Great War. So the wider Jewish community is, in a sense, regards itself, but is certainly regarded by commentators, whether they're Jewish or not, as divided between the well-established and the newly arrived. And there's a sense in which during the war, this becomes a bit of a, a bit problematic because 
there's a perception that the newly arrived Jews, the so-called Russian Jews, are not doing all that they should be for the war effort. And that perception is there to a degree among their co-religionists, but it's, it's increasingly there among the wider population. So how did uh, these various Jewish communities actually respond to the outbreak of, of the Great War in August 1914? Well, well, this is a really kind of interesting question and one that I, I thought was fascinating um, as I, as I re researched this. Um, at the very beginning, in, in the days leading up to the British declaration of war and in the days afterwards, there's a somewhat mixed response on the part of the Jewish press and other Jewish commentators. So, I mean, I think the main reservation Jewish communities in Britain and, and indeed in the United States and elsewhere have about the Allied position and the British position in 1914 is that Britain is entering a, a war as, a, as an ally of Tsarist Russia. And, you know, Tsarist Russia is just inextricably associated with not just anti-Semitism, but, you know, um, profoundly uh, anti-Jewish persecution, you know, uh, the killing and murder of Jewish men and women and, and, and the just destruction of Jewish property. So, you know, there are the very negative associations with Tsarist Russia. So there's, there's a bit of a sense of, well, why would we ally with Tsarist Russia, which is a deeply anti-Semitic society, against um, Germany and Austria, which at least by comparison are relatively, um, you know, relatively uh, welcoming societies for Jewish people, and in which a lot of British Jews would have had a lot of friends and relatives and so forth. So, so there's, there's some ambivalence, I would say, towards the end of July and, and, and in the very early days of August. But ultimately, once war is declared, you know, it's, it's really striking just how much the Jewish press and the two key Anglo-Jewish newspapers are the Jewish Chronicle and, and the Jewish World, just how pro-war they are. So they, they endorse the government decision to intervene in the European war and Jewish members of parliament, Jewish um, clergymen, Jewish journalists are very, um, I mean, pro-war is probably a bit simplistic a, a term, but they're certainly supportive of the war effort and they they you know very strongly encourage jewish men to enlist in the armed forces but also uh, jewish women in the jewish community more widely to support the war effort in any way that they can and what emerges quite quickly is is what you might refer to as a narrative of, of jewish gratitude so the war is interpreted by leopold greenberg who's the editor of the jewish chronicle and the jewish world and by other commentators, I, I think notably by Jewish clergy, as, as an opportunity for English Jews in particular to, to sort of repay a debt of gratitude to, to Britain, a country that has traditionally treated Jewish people um, well, at least by comparison with other European countries. For example, on the 7th of August, Leopold Greenberg writes an editorial in the Jewish Chronicle in which he, he, he uses quite a striking phrase about three times. What he says is, England has been all she could be to Jews. Jews will be all they can be to England. And he then has that phrase printed on an enormous placard and it, it hangs outside the Jewish uh, world and Jewish Chronicle offices in Finsbury Square in London throughout the war. So there's, there's a sense uh, one gets from reading the pre-war sources and then the responses to the war that in the years before the outbreak of the conflict, certainly the, the elites the Anglo-Jewish elites had been not simply comfortable to be English, but they had been proud and indeed regarded themselves as fortunate and lucky. I mean, the, the decades before the, um, 
the outbreak of war in 1914 were in a sense a kind of a golden age for Anglo-Germany. It was a time when they felt particularly safe and particularly accepted and as though they were thriving and, and doing especially well in, in England and, and perhaps more widely in Britain. So the war then is greeted as a moment in which that debt can be repaid. But also, and you know, we have to read between the lines here slightly, there's a sense in the that in which in the ultra patriotic climate of 1914 and really throughout the war, the Jewish community becomes suspect. I mean, very many of them um, are descendants of um, immigrants, either from Central Europe or elsewhere. Uh, a lot of German Jews and um, or British Jews of German descent or from Eastern Europe have German sounding names. So they become a, a kind of an object of suspicion fairly early on. And so this very effusive support for the war in a, in a way is a response to that. It's, a, it's an effort to counter that um, uh, sense of suspicion on the part of the, the wider community. So when we talk about the Jewish experience of the war, it's obviously very difficult to, to actually talk about this um, as a collective when we're looking at individuals. But do you think there are a number of, of people whose experience could be seen as, quotes typical? I know it's really difficult when you're an academic to be um, um, yeah, well, we're so obsessed with nuance, you know, we can't just come out and say anything. Um, but, but of course there are. I mean, the, I would say, first of all, that the response of Jewish men of military service age to the appeal for recruits in 1914 and 15 was, was pretty overwhelming. I mean, they, they seem to have enlisted and gained commissions in the British Army in disproportionate numbers. If I were to think of individuals, I mean, you know, I don't think any one individual is truly representative. Someone who drew me to the study of, of this um, and a figure I became particularly interested in, and who I suppose if you look at his life, he tells us quite a lot about the wider community, is, is Michael Adler, who was a Jewish chaplain during the war. So he was a, um, a, a Londoner. He'd been born in Spitalfields in the late 1860s. He grew up in London. His father was a you know, poor tailor, he was a, a Polish tailor. Um, so he came from a relatively humble background, but he was a, a bright, intelligent young man. And he was educated at Jews College in London and at University College. So by the time the war broke out in 1914, he was a minister at the uh, Central Synagogue in West London. And he'd been serving as a territorial chaplain for about five years at that stage. So he offered himself for overseas service as a, a chaplain to the forces, and he was granted a commission early in 1915. He went to the Western Front and he served in France and Belgium really until the final year of the war. Now his diary, which survives, it's at the University of Southampton, is a bit disappointing. It's a lot of kind of quotidian, you know, I had breakfast, I said a service, I did whatever. It's, it's, it's a little bit disappointing in terms of narrative detail, but some of the articles he published during the war in you know the Jewish press, but also in the Gentile press, for want of a better term, really give us a fascinating insight into Jewish engagement with the war and Jewish responses to the war effort. And also, and this is kind of crucial, um, Adler was, he did most of the compiling and editing of the British Jewry Book of Honor, which was this enormous tome that was published in 1922. Um, and it's, I think, certainly a lot of British Jews are familiar with to this day. I mean, it, for very many Jewish families in England and indeed um, more widely in Britain and Ireland, this was a, a, an heirloom that's been passed down since the 
um, years after the Great War. But it's, it's a fascinating artifact. Um, I'm sure you've come across it yourself, Tom, in your, in your research. But unlike a lot of these rolls of honours, it's enormous. It's over a thousand pages long. Um, and it lists not only the men who fell, who were Jewish and served in the British forces, which is at least 2,000 men, but pretty much, not everyone, but a, a huge percentage of those who served at all. So there are over 40,000 names. There are extensive articles by Adler and others. And there's commentary from you know, very kind of distinguished um, non-Jewish uh, commentators, people like Douglas Haig and Winston Churchill, but also the chief rabbi and members of the Jewish community. So, you know, in terms of what Adler has given to the world, that's, that's a crucial source. Another figure I, I discovered more recently and who I, I, I found really interesting was a woman called Florence Oppenheimer. So she was born in London in the late 1880s and she came from a relatively large family. She left school, I think, at you know, youngish, 17. And she became a nurse, or at least she started training as a nurse in 1911. So she was already uh, working as a nurse in training when war broke out. And I think she was taking her final exams in, in 1914. Um, but she volunteered for overseas service as a nurse in 1915. And she served in the Mediterranean really for the rest of the war, and I think into 1919. Um, when she came home then, she married Leopold Greenberg, who was the editor of the Jewish Chronicle. So she, she went on then to become a food critic, a, a food columnist in the, in the Jewish Chronicle throughout the 20s and 30s. And her diaries have been published, they're digitized and are online. And the Jewish Museum of London, which, which have a, a really engaging website, and her diaries, or at least some of them, are published there. Another excellent website, which your listeners may be in, interested in, is uh, British Jews in the First World War. We were there too, which focuses entirely on the, on the Jewish, British Jewish experience of the war. And Florence Oppenheimer, who goes on to become Florence uh, Greenberg, she's referenced there too. But I suppose, I mean, one of the things I was, you know, in this chapter I've published uh, recently enough, I, I was a bit disappointed in myself, or at least a, a caveat, if you like, is that a lot of the voices, a lot of the sources I cite are, are, were produced by the elites. You know, they were produced by relatively well-off members of the Anglo-Jewish community, journalists, politicians, um, and other commentators. And, you know, the voice of the ordinary, relatively poor, um, you know, private soldier, for example, isn't really there. Although, you know, you know, thousands of um, Jewish men from quite ordinary backgrounds served in the forces during the war. And I suppose the best known of those is Isaac Rosenberg, who at least in the last couple of decades is, uh, is regarded among the great pantheon of British war poets. Um, so he was, he, he was born originally, I think he was born in Bristol, and then he moved to Stepney, moved to the East End when he was a child, um, came from a relatively humble background. But like Michael Adler, he was bright and intelligent. He studied at the Slade uh, Art School and at Birkbeck College, I believe. Um, now, he was actually in South Africa when the war broke out, but he returned to Britain in 1915, and he enlisted uh, in, I think, September, sometime in the autumn of 1915. He was, a, he was a small man. He was about five foot three, which even for the standards of the time is, is pretty small. And so he enlisted in the 12th, God, it was the 12th Sussex, which I think was a Bantam battalion, Bantam unit. But he served a number of different units during the war, and he was with the, um, the uh, King's Own Royal Regiment, a, a Lancaster regiment, when he, when he was killed on the 1st of April 1918. So he was killed during the, the Ludendorff offensive. And he, he painted and written poetry throughout the war. 
His most famous poem, I think, is, is Break of Day in the Trenches. But one of his poems that I, I think is particularly intriguing and mysterious and interesting seems to have been the last one he wrote. So he, he wrote it, or at least he, he posted it back to Britain in the last letter he, he wrote, which was in March of 1918. And it's called Through These Pale Cold Days. Now, it's, it's interesting to me because it, it, it's a brief poem, just three stanzas, but it, ref, it seems to refer very directly to his own Jewish heritage and to Jewish history. So I thought it might be worth reading out. Um, again, it's a, it's a brief enough poem. So this is um, Isaac Rosenberg, Through These Pale Cold Days. Through these pale cold days, what dark faces burn out of 3,000 years and their wild eyes yearn, while underneath their brows, like waifs, their spirits grope for the pools of Hebron again, for Lebanon's summer slope. They leave these blonde still days in dust behind their tread. They see with living eyes how long they have been dead. So that was the last poem he wrote. Um, now, look, these things are subjective, as you know, but I would say he's, you know, the work he produced during the war is at least on a par with Wilfred Owen, and I would say exceeds the literary merit of Sassoon and Graves and Edward Tom. So how did the wider society in Britain perceive the contribution of uh, the Anglo-Jewish community during the Great War? Um, I mean, look, it, it's a complex question. You know, this is a country of at least 45 million people. It's, it's difficult to, to sort of put a finger on what the you know, popular sentiment was with regard to the Jewish community. What we can clearly say, however, I think with confidence, is that really for the first time during, and especially after the war, we see the emergence of quite vicious anti-Semitism, political anti-Semitism in Britain. So in the years before the war, anti-Semitism in Britain, there's no, there's no real doubt about that, but I think a lot of people within the Jewish community, certainly the better off Anglo-Jewish elite regarded anti-Semitism before the war as a sort of a nuisance and as of a different order to anti-Semitism in France or Germany and certainly in, in Russia. During the war, this, this changes. So in 1917, for example, in June, I think 1917, uh, a mob descends on the Jewish quarter in Leeds. There's a lot of violence, destruction of pop property takes there. That's clearly anti-Semitic in... Um, Okay, so, you know, anti-Semitism during the war is, th there are some clearly anti-Semitic incidents during the war. In June of 1917, a mob descends on the Jewish quarter in Leeds, and there's quite a lot of violence and destruction of property. And in September of that year, there's a, a pitched battle in Bethnal Green between um, non-Jewish working class people from the district and, and, and their Jewish neighbours. So you know, these are quite ugly incidents that would be difficult to imagine in the years before the war. And something that happens very shortly after the end of the war is quite striking. And um, towards the end of 1918, a guy called Henry Hamilton Beamish sets up an organization that becomes known as the Britons. And their motto is Britain for Britons. And it's essentially an ultra-nationalistic organization, but it, its main focus is anti-Semitism. So it's, it's the literature produces and really most of what it does in the 20s is, is print pamphlets and so forth is, is you know, profoundly anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish. And they, for example, print copies of the, the hoax uh, protocols of the elders of Zion and they, they circulate them in, in Britain. Um, and then, of course, the, the British Union of Fascists emerges in the inter interwar years. Now, the Britons 
and indeed the BUF, it, you know, it's, it's worth acknowledging that these are very fringe groups in wider British society. They don't have uh, much political resonance. They don't have a large membership or anything like that. So if you like, their influence in British society is marginal. But of course, if you're a member of the Anglo-Jewish community during this time, this is, this is quite threatening and intimidating that organizations have been founded that are, that who, uh, among their core principles is anti-Semitism. I mean, really the whole raison d'etre of the, of the Britons is, is to attack the Jewish community. So that, that feels quite threatening, I think, in the years after the First World War. And a lot of the rhetoric, anti-Semitic rhetoric we see in the early 1920s, or at least a good deal of it, impugns the war service record of the Jewish community. So it suggests that they didn't really do much and that they, you know, Jews in Dublin hid in air raid shelters and fled down to Brighton and, and didn't and refused to join the armed forces. And, you know, some of this hinges on this, um, this widespread feeling that so-called Russian Jews, who, many of whom, probably about 30,000 of whom, weren't subject to the terms of the Military Service Act. Um, there's a sense that because a certain number of Jews in the East End of London weren't joining the army as late as 1917, that Jews per se aren't doing this, which of course is false. In fact, the opposite is, is the case. But, you know, anti-Semites really seize on this. And they, yeah, I mean, scapegoat, they become scapegoated late in the war and, and in the years after the war. And I think what we see with the British Jewry Book of Honour is an attempt to, is at least partly, an attempt to counter that narrative. Which brings me on to my next question, which is looking at, at the ways that the Anglo-Jewish community commemorated and remembered their service in the Great War. What else did they do um, after the armistice? Well, um, you know, the, the, the jury, British Jewry Book of Honour is um, it's a very you know, important kind of tone, but um, very often what British Jews do, particularly veterans, is that they simply participate in, in their own quiet way, in, in all of the um, sort of the, the emerging national culture of commemoration that we see in the 1920s. And there's a sense that, well, by our presence um, on Armistice Day, Remembrance Sunday, you know, which are different things really in the 20s, but, you know, at the unveiling of the Cenotaph, at the interment of the Unknown Warrior, and by covering these things in the Jewish press, we can highlight our service. And then, of course, within the Jewish community, within you know, synagogues and places of worship, schools and so forth, there are, as there are in the Anglican community, the Presbyterian community, the Catholic community, there are, there's a, a highlighting, an emphasis on their own contribution to an engagement with the war effort. Um, now, this becomes a bit more pressing in the 1930s, of course, when we see a very obvious emergence of anti-Semitism in continental Europe, but, but also, I think, um, a perceived threat from the British Union of Fascists and other elements within um within britain so often in jewish countering of this and their responses to this they refer back to jewish service and jewish sacrifice during the first world war and you know the couple of thousand jewish men who gave their lives um serving in the british forces the jewish men who were awarded victoria crosses probably four or five of those um and the hundreds who were awarded military crosses military medals gallantry award and um, during the conflict my penultimate question is what a what what projects are you currently working on? Um, so for the last couple of years, Tom, I've been, I've been very interested in and I've been researching the British experience of the Irish War of Independence. So um, something that's always fascinated me is the way in which 
cultural mobilization. So essentially the process of persuading people that this war is worth fighting and worth winning, how that's especially pressing in Britain, by contrast with Germany, France, Belgium. All of those countries have systems of military conscription. All of those countries are invaded <laughs> in 1914. So the moral imperative to go to war in, let's say, France is obvious. We've been invaded by a hated enemy. He must be expelled. And even if it weren't obvious, um, men can be legally required to fight. Neither of those things hold true in Britain. So the need to present the war as a morally righteous endeavor is arguably at least more pressing in Britain than it is elsewhere. So what emerges in Britain in 1914 and subsequently is a narrative of you know, Britain fighting in defense of civilization, that's a well-known trope, but also for honor and decency and you know, things that are regarded as British values and British kind of core traits. So it's very striking then in the years after the war, when it appears as though British servicemen in Ireland are committing the same sort of atrocities that German servicemen committed in France and Belgium in 1914. You know, that becomes a, a, quite a, a morally problematic issue from at least the middle of 1920. So of course the, the Irish, or at least the conflict that's now known as the Irish War of Independence that breaks out in 1919. It escalates at the beginning of 19. 20, when the, the Black and Tans are deployed around March 1920 um, to, to counter the increasingly aggressive IRA campaign. It escalates further in July of 1920 with the deployment of the Auxiliary Division. And really by August, September 1920, there, there's a full-scale guerrilla war underway in Ireland. Uh, civilians are regularly being shot dead by the Crown Forces. And the members of the Crown Forces, these state paramilitary units, are exclusively veterans of the Great War. So they're men who would have served on the Western Front or at Gallipoli or in the various theatres of the conflict and often with distinction. And it creates a lot of moral unease in Britain that a war had been fought in which a, about 780,000 people from across these islands died in service. Millions more were bereaved, traumatised, uh, disabled and so forth on, on, the, on the position that Britain was fighting tyranny, it was fighting the harassment of civilians, it was fighting German atrocities. And yet now it looks as though Britain is, is, is sort of complicit in that kind of behavior in Ireland. And you know, we would expect Republican and Irish nationalists uh, and maybe leftist commentators in Britain to uh, promote that idea in 1920. What's striking though, is that we see people like the Archbishop of Canterbury and conservative members of both the House of Commons and the House of Lords and other commentators who have really no sympathy with Irish independence, whatever, being like remarkably critical of the Crown forces in 1920 and 21 on the basis that this is, this is morally untenable. So, so that's something I've been exploring. Um, I published an article um, on, that, on that theme over the summer, it's called An Irish uh, Louvain. That was published in um, Irish Historical Studies. Incidentally, there, there's a very good article in that same issue by Brian Hanley, which is about the Jewish experience of the Irish War of Independence, which um, anyone interested in Jewish history of this period may, may want to take a look at. And um, I recently published, uh, well, published maybe is the wrong word, I, I recently uploaded um, uh, uh, a blog post on on this theme just just before Remembrance Sunday this year, um, I, and it's it's called um, "What Do We Do with the Inglorious Dead?" And finally, where can people find out more about your work? Good question. And um, <laughs> thankfully, because I, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, 
a post in an academic department. I'm very easy to find online if you just put in my name, Edward Madigan, into the, the search engine. Um, my affiliation, but also my publications come up. And if you go on to, I mean, I, I've kind of loathed to recommend Amazon th these days because it's become such a, an all-powerful and sinister organization in some ways. But you can find uh, the, 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 my one monograph and the three volumes of essays that I've edited are all available on there. At least a couple of them are affordable. <laughs> so probably 50% of my four books can actually be, be safely bought by an individual. And um, Historians for History is a website, it's a, a blog site that I co-edit. And I've several articles on that, all really on the remembrance culture of the Great War. Um, some of that has to do with, you know, I, Irish dimensions to, to the to remembrance, but a lot of it focuses on uh, British commemorative culture and, you know, some of the aspects of that culture I find particularly intriguing or, or worthy of. So that's historians for history. Edward, thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you, Tom. Thanks for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.